Thank you everybody for joining. This is a webinar discussion on the best hip hop album rollouts of all time. I'm joined today by Chicago's finest, the editor and chief of the Office Hours podcast, Mr. Ernest Wilkins. Welcome, man. Hey, 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 everybody. How y'all doing? You've read our publications, respectively, mine, Office Hours, his, Trapital. You've seen us collab before. So, like, imagine this is like Lethal Weapon 2. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's good, but it's going to get better. So just get excited. Because I'm, I'm excited. I don't know. I love talking about this stuff. We were going to do this with or without y'all. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. We're talking about this. I was like, no, let's let's make this a group thing because I think it can be fun to have some more people involved with it. The way this works is like this. We are going to be counting down five through one, the top hip hop album rollouts of all time. We're also going to talk a little bit in the beginning, too, about what makes a great album rollout. What are the things that we're really looking for? And then after that, we'll briefly talk about any surprises, some common themes, maybe even some honorable mentions we might have missed. And then we'll save the last 15 minutes for Q&A. So if you have any questions throughout the chat, feel free, put them in there. We'll be reading them. We'll be seeing them. So we'll definitely take turns and then we'll be able to answer them at the end. Ernest, anything else on your end? I just really want to say thank you to everybody who's here before we get started. And also we have folks from internationally, you know, folks from France, all over the world are here. We love y'all and we appreciate it. Let's start off by defining what makes a great album rollout, because so many people have become more topical talking about this specifically in the past decade or so, because I feel like the concept of making your albums these big events which is a great thing, has become much more common. So, Ernest, what are some things that stick out to you? What really makes a great hip-hop album rollout? I think just taking a step back to what you just said, like the concept of the hip-hop album rollout has evolved as hip-hop has grown in popularity over the years. My first recollection of a successful and really endearing hip-hop rollout was the Big Mac campaign from Puff, from Bad Boy Records. If you don't know... Craig Mack was the first artist that actually really kind of stood out on Bad Boy and the Notorious B.I.G., B.I.G., Mac, Big Mac, you get it. That was like the first kind of concept you saw a hip hop, not the first, but hip hop presented at the same level of art as a traditional pop album or traditional rock album would have a rollout. And as such, we've seen these things go from stunts to tactics. I think a successful rollout to me is a narrative. I think every the best artists have created specific characters that you identify with. You know, you look at somebody like The Weeknd, for example, I think he is one of the best living examples of what a successful album rollout should look like. And in the hip hop space, well, I'm not going to tip my hand here, but there are definitely a few artists who have kind of mastered the concept of this piece of art or this cultural thing that I'm producing, this cultural product has to have a narrative that people can understand, but more importantly, they can identify with. I mean, hits are hits, but if you can endure a sense of narrative and a sense of a story, or at least a sense of a linear path, I think that's what separates an album dropping from an, a proper album rollout. Yeah, The weekend has been putting on a campaign and rollout, the two of them together, really good. What I would add to that too is I look for an opportunity to really level up because there are so many people that are already superstars. And of course, if you're a big name in this game, you're probably going to sell a lot of records regardless of what you do. However, a lot of the examples that I picked, I know some of the ones you picked too, are opportunities where people really went from, even if they were at 1B, they went to 1A and they were really able to get there and they did something unique and something different because they knew that they could have taken the safe route themselves. Their careers were fine, but they were really able to take advantage of whatever new thing or new trend was happening. It's really dope. For me, a successful hip hop album rollout is a calculated risk. You could easily just paint by numbers, do your media run, go to New York, be on all the blogs and the podcasts, and then keep it moving and drop your product, maybe shoot a video. A proper rollout includes a calculated risk, whether that be a stunt, whether that be a new look, whether that be a new sound, whether that be the distribution method. And we'll talk about all of that. But the risk to me is what makes a successful rollout. You took a risk on your creative output and it paid off. Agreed. So let's start with number five. What did you rank as your number five for best hip hop album rollouts? Oh, yeah. And quick thing for everyone. These are based off of rollouts that happened in the 21st century. So everything from 2000 and since then. Yes. 
And we want to be clear about that because we can literally talk about, like I said, bad boy. We talk about death row, no limit. We could be here literally until the cows come home and maybe we'll do those in, in a future webinar. But for the sake of time, I want to start off number five with two chains. Two chains, I believe, without a shadow of a doubt, like you say somebody's ahead of their time, like two chains to me is an artist who understands the full, like I said, narrative process of an album. His rollout for Pretty Girls Like Trap Music. I like that album a lot, just in general from a rap perspective, but how he packaged it and how he rolled it out or what took it from an album that you may have heard a single from and thought to check out later to a product that actually moved some records for 2 Chains, And it was, I think to this day, it was his highest selling album. More specifically, the tactics. Like I said, it's about the calculated risk for me. The fact that 2 Chains, and for those who don't know, 2 Chains and his team and the label basically put together a trap house and they painted it pink to, you know, simulate the album cover and legit just ran events. I'm talking, they did charity events, but they were having people, you know, take HIV testing and getting, you know, information out to the community from tours. This was an earlier version of what you saw later on with like the 29 Rooms phenomenon, kind of that Instagram bait location. But they dropped it in Atlanta in a place where it's the young tech, black Wakanda, whatever people are calling it. These brains are out there. And so the content you were seeing come out of there was so creative and so innovative. And because of all of the talent that already lived in Atlanta, there was a lot of really great moments that you saw. So it seemed a lot bigger than it was. And I think that's another piece. And this is why it's my number five is that to your point earlier, I think it went two chains with the songs on there and the sales. I think he went from that one B to one A. And I think he became that guy that is on a television doing the intro for an NBA game. I think that's a certain level of rapper. And I think he got there because of that rollout. That's a great one. I actually went to Atlanta a couple years ago, went to the trap museum that they got there. And that is the main feature in that trap museum. They call it a museum, but the way that it's laid out, this is essentially like an Instagram opportunity that people are paying $10 in order to go see. That's how iconic that pink car is. And I think you're right with 2 chains. Let's think about his career in general. So in the 2000s, back on Duffelbag Boy, he was Titty Boy. Titty Boy, and just really quick anecdotally, so I used to work down there and lived in Atlanta for years. I can tell you, Titty Boy, as a rapper, as a rapper, was already respected. And so he had this local legend kind of vibe because he was out and about, he was flashy. You saw him out. And then they dropped Double Bag Boy, which super big. And then Look What I Got, which is off that one, that Flight 360 album. That rebrand, I think, is in the list of top 10 music rebrands in history. To your point, we were about to go and say like, because the next time you saw him was with Kanye West. Exactly. And that year that he had, I think it was 2012, 2013, where he was the guy that was on every hip hop feature that you wanted. That was that next level. And then, yeah, I think Pretty Girls Like Trap Music and everything he did from there, we started to see a little bit more of the savvy businessman, Two Chains, where he became the investor in that minor league Atlanta basketball team, whatever the minor league affiliate for the Atlanta Hawks is that's down there and a few others. Yeah, he's really been making moves. I love it, too, because he's one of the guys and I feel like a couple of the birthday boys today, Ross, J. Cole, Rakim, like they have this ability to focus on creating that narrative like I was talking about. You never listen to it and go, this doesn't fit. It felt like it made sense. The aesthetic was on point. He got an area on a grande feature. Things started to level up. That song, It's a Vibe, hit really hard. And you had this real sense of momentum. And I think that's the other thing I wish I had said it earlier, was that's the key to that album rollout. A great album rollout should feel like a wave is coming. And if you aren't in that, you know, roll with us or get rolled over is what they used to say. And I think that is also a very important piece. And I feel like that kind of concept really felt that new Atlanta vibe back in that era. And you really saw that succeed for two chains. But yeah. Yeah, it was definitely a vibe. My number five is Travis Scott's Astroworld album that he dropped in 2018. I believe this is the beginning of August 2018. It's definitely one of the biggest hip-hop albums rollouts that we've had in recent years. And this, to me, is the definition of leveling up. We got to remember who Travis Scott was as an artist before this album. He was big. He had some hits. I mean, Rodeo definitely had some singles. Birds of the Trap, Sig McKnight had some singles. But still wasn't a guy that had 
a album that would sell over a hundred thousand in the same week. He just wasn't quite there yet. But then a few things start to happen. He starts to date Kylie Jenner. And then that obviously will elevate your status and your celebrity to everything else. Chris Jenner deserves a hall of fame in the marketing hall of fame. And then additionally, he was promoting and talking about Astroworld even before Birds of the Trap Sig McKnight came out. So the fans, the Ragers were already starting to hear a little bit about this. And then he lets them know that it's coming. And this was probably one of the last albums, I feel, at least the fears that really felt like it was a true event, at least in terms of hip hop. Everyone knew that it was coming. He was able to get the big Drake feature on it. He got a few other big ones, too. And I think what really stuck out with this is he was able to gamify the system and people started to put merch and albums together and the whole album bundle was a thing. But it really didn't become what it was that we talk about it now until Travis Scott dropped Astroworld. He had a 24-hour merch cycle where every hour that the album dropped, there was a new piece of merch that the fans could buy. And you see the way these YouTube videos are and everything. People want to unbox things. That's a whole other culture. He tapped into that. And he was able to sell, I believe it was 450,000 albums in his first week. Half of them were due to bundles, but half of them weren't. It was still due to just Travis Scott putting out stuff that people wanted. It was really impressive. And I think it led to everything that we've seen since then. The Super Bowl all of the brand partnerships, the Netflix special, him having a song in Tenet, McDonald's, whatever you name it that he's done, a lot of it stems back to this moment. I think Travis Scott and shout out to his team because they were the first ones to see the future. I think with this one, you saw the perfect merger of the old record label machine because let's be very serious. There is nothing better in the world than when a label decides to get behind a project and put some cash behind it because you know But then I think his team is savvy. And I think they saw what other genres, let's look at what's going on across the Latin world, Latin pop world, Latin trap world, all of that, that world, plus K-pop and those fan cultures and those stand cultures and being able to leverage it to say, hey, this is a lifestyle. So if you're part of this lifestyle, again, that momentum, are you with us or not? Because if you're with us, we're going to Astro World. And there's going to be a giant balloon with his face on it. And they're going to literally bring back the old Six Flags from Houston. Because I think that was the other side of it. This to me, and I hate using marketing words, but I study cultural industries for my newsletter, right? So that's music, sports, film, cross-functionality. A lot of people want it. A lot of people can't do it well. This to me is one of the most successful cross-functional cultural campaigns I've ever seen. And I say that on top of rap, on top of music, on top of everything, because you saw what it led into, because it wasn't just him rapping really well and everybody going, wow, it was this whole package. And then you see the things like the Fortnite integrations and the concerts. I call those like olive branches to other cultures because he could have just stayed in rap. He could have been on love and hip hop and did his thing. But he said, I'm a gamer. Let's see what the gamers are about. And he knows that people who are in these subcultures are all fans of him. So if he can go to them authentically and present something that they were already going to buy anyway, you're A, going to get people that were already fans to get loud and evangelize you and B, the people who weren't necessarily up on you who maybe listened to Goosebumps and that's it. Those people are now like, wait, try to stop? Whoa. And you drop sicko mode, which there you go. Exactly. It was such a moment. I'm excited to see where he continues to go. What's your four? All right. Number four, actually speaking of birthdays. This one is for the birthday boy, J. Cole. I don't know if you heard, but he dropped an album in 2014. It was called 2014 Forest Hills Drive. This album went platinum with no features. I have to say that. Otherwise, I'll get kicked off of Twitter. (laughs) Uh, No, joke aside. The way that that album was rolled out, I think, was a harbinger of J. Cole's path to being this, like, he's a 1A but he's a 1A that did it in a way that doesn't necessarily align with how the industry would have liked him to do it. So for me, it's like the doubling down on community and their engagement and the focus on, as we know as newsletter people, that niche, Dreamville does that better than anybody I've ever seen. And when I say they take that savvy that they have as intelligent people and they go, okay, let's go home. J. Cole, his team, to get together and they say, okay, let's go home. And he went back to Fayetteville and just got back with the people that got him to where he was. 
I mean, literally, in a lot of cases, like these are the people he grew up with, but also just fans who are in your, your hometown, like the most hardcore. I can tell you right now, if Twister showed up at my house in 1996, I would have lost my mind. If the brat showed up in 95, I would have lost my mind. And hey, listen to the new album. She played me Functified. I would have threw up. You see what I'm saying? That's building brand loyalty. And I don't care what tactics, what growth hacks, what black hat SEO nonsense you're trying to do out here. Nothing beats building authentic connections. And that is why that album, I believe, is such a evangelized thing because Cole went to the kids and he didn't have to. 2014 for Soul Chives was a turning point for that man. I mean, we think about Cole before then, the two albums he had before. So he had Born Sinner, that was 2013, and then Sideline Story. But notice the difference because those two previous albums did well, you know, but he was in the machine. He was doing features, the workout and all that stuff. And you could tell it wasn't him, but it was him, but it wasn't him. And I think 2014 was the first time we were like, it was a calculated risk because he could have kept making that nobody's perfect song he did with Missy is a banger. He could have kept doing that or doing features. But he said, "Okay, no, let me go and make the project that I need to make. And it was a calculated risk. You felt like you were part of a momentum and it felt like a moment. And there it is. I think part of the reason that he was able to at least transition from that point, a lot of it came from that dollar in a dream tour that he did. So it was in 2013 was when he did the first one. And it was like right after Born Sinner came and it was like, okay, let me just have this tour. I'm only going to charge fans $1. I'm going to go into the smallest venues possible. And I am just going to do my old mixtape stuff. So he's going back the come up, the warm up, Friday Night Lights. The first one worked so well. And they had a small tour in a few different cities. They ran it back in 2014 that summer. And then even the next summer, they ran it back again in 2015. He didn't end up doing it again. They just said it was a lot of work. And I understand it's a lot of work, especially if you're going to do something like that. But even though only a small amount of people were able to go, like that's the kind of stuff that was really able to help him build his thousand true fans. So many people talk about that. And I think Cole has that in every different city. A lot of it came from that concert and then that album. And I can tell you just anecdotally, because I I work work at the Chicago Tribune doing music coverage and the Dollar in the Dream show, because so many folks in the Dreamville camp are either from Chicago or from here, you know, like Omen and obviously Ari Lennox, the icon, Cole has always kind of been around. And so he did that tour now. And I remember when they did it. And I remember the line. When I say a line, I don't mean like, oh, there was a couple people huddled. There was like 30 people. No, 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 no. We sent somebody out from the newspaper because the line was three and a half blocks long. Supreme had nothing on this. And these kids, kids, that's what I'm talking Remember, were not going. They cut class. They got out of school. They played hooky because they saw Cole was coming to town. And that's when I realized, because at first, I think a lot of people were just like, oh, that's Jay-Z's protege. Okay, Star is Born, Blue Panther 3. Cool. Oh, wait, this is different. It was different. Big change in moment for him. So my number four is Jay-Z's 444 album. This is the album he put out in 2017. And this album sticks out for a few reasons. And I think it's a great rollout for several reasons. First, let's quickly talk about the cell phone collaboration that he did with Sprint. Jay-Z has been trying to pair his albums with cell phones in some way for decades now. He started it with the Black album. They had that Black phone, the Nokia phone. It was okay. You know, it was just a bit early, though. It was just a little early in the game. Then when Kingdom Come came out, he had this singular concert where he was doing like the 24 shows in an hour, or he was doing three shows in 24 hours. I forget what it was exactly. A little choppy as well, but there's some YouTube footage on it. Then Magna Carta Holy Grail. It was inventive. He had the Samsung thing that he had, but it was a botched rollout. The technology still wasn't quite there. But things finally started to click a little better with 444. Earlier that year, beginning of 2017, he was able to sell a third of title to Sprint. And as part of the deal, Sprint bought the company for $200 million, but they were able to set aside $75 million specifically for budget for helping to promote other artists that are releasing exclusive content through title. So this was great for Jay-Z because he 
really in many ways had the last great big event album that came out on title. He was benefited from that. So not only did he have Sprint as a stakeholder to help push the album, they was also able to get them vested in the upside too. So it worked by having everyone that was a Sprint customer getting the album automatically for free. Second point is that the album rollout was tied into everything related to what happened with Beyonce and Solange on that elevator in 2014. You know, billion dollars on an elevator. This was Jay-Z story. Everyone was waiting to hear what Jay-Z had to say about this album. It finally happened. And then there was also just the fun stuff he had. Like he had that rollout with the promo clip with Issa Rae and Lil Well Howery where they did the Friends spoof, but they did it based off of the Houdini Friends soundtrack. The clip is on YouTube. You can go check it out. But yeah, I think this is where Jay-Z really shined because he was always trying to be ahead of the game and not just relying on him himself as a brand. So I think 444 was a really strong one. Absolutely agree. Just really quick and we can keep it moving. But like calculated risk, all of that was a calculated risk from the partnership side of it, because you saw what happened with you, too. Sometimes the phone thing doesn't work out, but also calculated risk of the subject matter. Let's be very clear. That is I've heard him at least be like it was a risk because you step outside of who we know as Jay-Z and you get personal, which is not something he's necessarily done, albeit on a couple of songs. So all together, like, come on, it's Jay-Z and it's a new Jay-Z album. If you care, you're there. But I think the piece that he had to leverage and he didn't have for his previous albums was that wave of Beyonce mania. I think 444 is for a lot of people, the first Jay-Z album they ever listened to. And I think that's because of all of that calculated momentum. All right. You're number three. My number three. I'm really excited. I don't know why I'm doing the Sunday, Sunday, Sunday voice, <laughs> but okay. I'm going to go ahead and tell everybody, yes, I am from Chicago. And so, yes, that means, unfortunately, it's now time to talk about Kanye West. My number three is Kanye West's absolutely decadent, we'll call it, release for The Life of Pablo, uh, Madison Square Garden. So if you don't remember, that album's whole rollout was actually an example of one of the worst album rollouts of all time leading up into this moment. It was called Waves, and then it was called something else, and then it was called Switch, and then it was called, you know, and they got changed, and there were songs, and there was leaks, and there weren't leaks, and then things got edited. And then the Yeezy Fashion Show at Madison Square Garden. Now, Calculated Risk, Momentum is Kanye West at his apex. He had already put out, you know, I think No More Parties in L.A., and Real Friends. So at this point, you're like, what is he about to do? Because he's rapping again, and so I'm excited. Ultralight Beam... And then he goes to Madison Square Garden. And the first person you see is Lamar Odom. <laughs> Walk out with him in the full length. And the entire Kardashian-Jenner assemblage is there. And there's this crazy avant-garde-looking kind of... He really loves himself a large column, doesn't he? Just anecdotally. But then it's all on title. Exclusively on title. So you had to watch for that. But then you say to yourself, okay, what's he going to do? Is he going to perform? Because it sounds like this is going to be a performance. So then the models are just kind of standing there because it's Kanye West. So you're always going to get that little bit of, huh? But this man does the exact thing that I personally started liking him for, which is that mix of high and low culture, right? So he's in this decadent, extravagant opulent there's every rich person i felt like they it was like the great day in harlem photo in that place and then all of a sudden he brings out a little laptop plugs in the aux the same way i have done drunkenly many times and just plays the album all the way through like it's good it was good but it was also having your true fans in that space and people who are already excited i tended to like pro wrestling it's like you're giving them an opportunity to cheer and you're giving them a reason. And I think one of the best strategies I've always seen is if we can make this song sound like a banger because you're seeing Kid Cudi like crying because it's so good. And that momentum made me go, well, I got to listen to it. And then the Saturday Night Live performance afterward and the whole just roll out and him dropping it and then redropping it. I say it's one of the best because it completely encapsulates the Kanye West experience. I would agree with that. Two other things I really liked about that rollout. One, it had some strong merch game. Those, I feel like Pablo t-shirts, sweatshirts, any type of garment, like it was everywhere. And that speaks a lot to the brand of Kanye West. And despite all the name changes and everything, he's still got people wearing and repping, I feel like Pablo. So that was dope to see. 
The second thing, which was a new thing that really leveraged the power of streaming was he was like, this isn't just a one-time piece of product that I put out there. This is going to be a work of art that I continue to tweak and adjust over time. How many times did we get a new version of Wolves? How many times did we just get this sneak? What was that? The Frank Ocean track, The Silver Surfer, where he has his version on it. I still don't know if I've actually heard Wolves all the way through. I don't know what it is. Like, I've heard seven different versions of it. I don't know what the real version is. I've heard them all. I hope if you put them all together, maybe you do like a 70s, like AOR style thing. You just run like 20 minutes. If you have the real Wolves, send that to me after this, Dan. Let's let's figure that out. <laughs> it's good. And I know that album gets hated on, but I do like it. I do like it. I'm just going to say this. Kanye West, we know he disappeared over the Bermuda Triangle right after the release of this album. And I don't know anything that happened to him after that. So this, to me is the final Kanye West album. In a sentimental way, I feel like he went out doing what he did best, making it absolutely confusing. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I hear that. My number three is an album I've talked about many times. I've had it ranked on number one for different things that I've either talked about, but that is Beyonce's self-titled album that she dropped in 2013. This conversation couldn't happen if we don't mention that. And it's interesting because this is actually a leveling up in some ways for her too. And people may not think about it that way, but this is why I think about it because let's go back to 2013 because this album dropped December, 2013. But before that, Beyonce's biggest single, at least what she was most known for, was Single Ladies, at least from a broader pop culture sense. So that comes out in 2009. That was, I think, non-Destiny's Child's first big solo crossover. Yeah. yeah. And then she also had the Sasha Fierce album, which I think a lot of diehard Beyonce fans are like, okay, not her best work, but we'll still listen to it. Then she has Four, which comes out 2011. I liked Four a lot, but it did not sell as well as people thought it would have. So then people are really starting to, I think, wonder, okay, what is the next decade going to look like for Beyonce? And it would have been tough to guarantee necessarily that it would have went to the level that we expected it to. Granted, she had just done the Super Bowl, I believe, that same year in January, which she obviously deserved to be in that position. But to go from where she was to everything we've seen the past seven years now, it's really impressive. And I think it speaks back to just how something that everyone in the industry has done so often, dropping surprise albums. It's so common now. People don't think twice about it. But for a superstar to do it the way that she did it and just think about how much marketing and promotion is one of the main value adds that people see and assume with record labels, it was huge. And I think it worked out for her and it really was able to help continue her career trajectory 1B to 1A as well. It's tricky because, and I completely agree with you, all the points you just said, it's tricky for me because Beyonce at that level, I feel like people liked her but it was just kind of like it's Beyonce and so the fans obviously notwithstanding but I think after that project she made people who weren't paying attention start paying attention obviously we've seen you know surprise releases Prince did it Radiohead did it before she did like whatever the difference was a the music because when it comes back to the product has to be good but the surprise of it was the fact that at no point did anybody believe that an artist of that tier that 1b tier would do something so it's a calculated risk. The craziest part about that rollout to me is the fact that we didn't hear anything about it until it happened. All those moving parts, the videos. She had a video for damn near every song, if not every song. All of that took place in a world where I can spoil literally any movie that's coming out just by going on Twitter and seeing you know, footage from the shoot. How they kept that quiet to me is one of the coolest overall just cultural industry things I've seen. But also, I think that's what made everybody go, Whoa, 1B to 1A. All right, what's your number two? Okay, so this one is actually fairly recent. I'm going back to the Dreamville well here. This is the rollout for Return of the Dreamers 3, which is their compilation project, obviously the third one. The way that they rolled it out, I think we will look back. We'll do this again in five years, and we'll be like, that was actually number one, just because what they did, and I think I'm going to say this in a contextual way for folks who aren't necessarily, you might work in a different cultural industry other than music. So it isn't a thing in a movie or TV setting. You see ensembles, right? There's always ensembles. People are willing, you know, come in, TV shows, sitcoms, all of that. 
Dreamville took an orthodox approach, a calculated risk, and they said, we need to do a compilation album, but we need to have the energy of now. We need to have this be the people that we're working with, the people we look up to, the people we like, people that we respect in the game right now. And a couple of legends. So they took a cue from what a lot of artists across tons of genres have done and kind of encamped in one space. But what they did differently was invited those people that they respect. It wasn't just, hey, come do a 16 and come hang. It was come be a part of this experience. And so they created essentially rap summer camp for some of the hottest artists and producers on the planet. And we're just like, come hang and let's build. And so what I think the best thing that they did, that calculated risk of, of sending out invitations, they sent out invitations like Willy Wonka Chocolate Factory. And I don't care what anybody says. If you were a rapper or a producer in that game and you didn't get one, you were kind of mad you didn't get one. And so that scarcity model, high clubhouse, works because people want to be a part of something, right? So that part, the movement, the overall intensity, I think, catapulted it from a label collab album, which, as we know, not always great, into another completely different thing. And then they had the foresight to film it all. So they dropped the documentary after the fact. And if I recommend every single person who works in the music industry, rap or not, watch that documentary, because what they did was we are going to create the environment that will be able to facilitate the best creative output. And then we're going to take our hands off. That thing could have been micromanaged to death. They could have had six to seven A&Rs and bring in the singer and then one person that we're pushing right now and whatever. They didn't. They just hunkered down and focused on the work. Everybody left their ego at the door. And we got a project that felt urgent. It felt fun. It felt loud. It felt like a party you wanted to be at. And for the record, this documentary is available for free on YouTube. They posted it up for the one-year anniversary of the album project coming out. But they dropped a bunch of really great songs. But you also got kind of an introduction to some of these artists who you not necessarily may have seen if you're just a J. Cole fan, like a Guap Dead 4000 or Ari or, you know, Omen is back rapping on this thing. And he was just, you know, an A&R. So, like, there was a momentous shift. And I think everybody who's affiliated with Dreamville is better for having done that project. And I think a lot of us are aware of the artists, you know, like the GIDs who were invited that are now in a bigger place because of it. So it wasn't like a 1B1A, but I think the label went from J. Cole's vanity project to, oh shit, they're a label. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, this was the peak for Dreamville. I guess I shouldn't say was because we still don't know what the future will hold. But in terms of like when was Dreamville the hottest, it was when this came out. They also had extended a lot of those invite as well to a lot of journalists. So you saw Twitter was starting to buzz with these two, almost the same way that a Rock Nation brunch was buzzing, where it was like, who's there? Who's that? It goes back to the scarcity thing you're talking about. We talked about like same thing with Clubhouse and others. It worked really well. I was impressed. Love it. What's yours? My number two goes back to 2003. So this is 50 Cent's Get Rich or Die Tryin'. This album will always stick out to me because there hasn't been a moment in hip hop bigger, at least from like a album and like a monoculture perspective, than this album. And I think some people can debate a few things and I'm always open to hear it, but it's hard to be bigger than the way this was just because of how media was back then. And you have to think about there's so much backstory with this that made it so effective. One, this was one of the first times that we saw the mixtape game rolled out and the way that people think about mixtapes and have thought about them for the past decade, it started with so much of the stuff that 50 Cent and G-Unit and K-Slay were doing before. 50 Cent was the future and all of those tapes really modernized what a street team could do and how effective it could be. And a lot of it just comes from someone like 50 Cent getting dropped by his label before and being like, no, like we got to put this into our own hands. So that's just one aspect of why this rollout was so big. Secondly, there's just so much clout and mystery and intrigue about 50 Cent. One, who is this person that's coming at Ja Rule and Murder, Inc., who at the time was the biggest group in the world at the time? The biggest. People, he's a joke now, folks, but I need to tell you, if you're under the age of 30, Ja Rule was one of the biggest rappers on the earth at one point. Not that the clowning isn't fair, but let's not act like Murder, Inc. wasn't big in 2001, 2002. I'll play Living It Up right now. This whole thing will get turned up. Anyway, keep going. <laughs> so who is this person, right? And additionally, just this lure of like, this person got shot nine times. And 
How many times did you hear that? It just made him into this mythical figure that everyone was just bought into. He had the best co-sign that you could have at the time with Shady Aftermath. And the fact that they were able to release it in the debut single was not just good, but it's one of the most popular hip hop songs ever. 50 Cent had just posted it a couple weeks ago. He's like, this is the 18 year anniversary. This song still gets played a thousand times a week on radio in the US. That's a crazy stat. I mean, I'm not as detailed into some of the radio stats that are out there, but it was so impressive. And of course it ends up having the biggest week that we've seen in hip hop. Haven't really seen anything that big since. Several have come close, but not that big since. And it was the right rapper, the right moment, the right time, and was able to put the crew on the back and it was big time. So I think there was just so many things both in and out of his control, but yeah, 50 Cent, Get Rich or Die Trying. All in all, that was one of the best rollouts. Just real quick, just because I'm nerdy about cultural industries, talking about radio. To put that into perspective, I think a lot of people have started to see, you know, the influx of classic rap stations on radio, some of the larger corporations. Those aren't rolled out everywhere in the country. So the fact that 50 Cent is getting, hmm, I think it was a thousand or some crazy number of plays a week is insane, considering that means people are just putting it on in the middle of a mix. You know, after Lil Uzi Vert or whatever, you know, you know, for a fact, you're going to hear it. It's an all timer because it's always someone's birthday and we got to go shawty like it's their birthday. The Dr. Dre co-sign matters now. You know what I mean? If he co-signed you, you better believe it. it's going to pop off. But the mystery and the fact that Eminem, who is still like this is Eminem three years, two and a half years after the Marshall Mathers LP which is like super blown up. So like you have this collected effort plus the machine effort and that song just being absolutely inescapable because it was blasted everywhere. You never stop hearing it. The lore of him, the fact that 50 already had the rep as the how to rob guy. People forget about that. One of his first songs was him literally calling out everybody who was popular at the time, which is I think what people do on Twitter now is marketing stuff. So the world is pre get Richard die trying and post get Richard die trying for me. So I understand completely. Agreed. Love it. All right. Let's bring them home. What's the number one? What do you got? Number one for me. This one, I feel like encapsulates the entire conversation we've had, but it also encapsulates truly what I believe is one of you talked about monoculture earlier. This is one of those last big monoculture moments. I think after this, a lot of things change forever. And that, of course, is the massacre graduation or a.k.a. 50 Cent versus Kanye West. This rollout was a co-album rollout featuring two artists that weren't working together on the projects, but yet realized that media was so fascinated with them respectively, because you got to think about it, like 07, you know, 50 still cranking. Kanye's definitely still cranking. And so you have momentum and you have this hype, but then you also have, again, the characters. And the characters were 50 Cent is the streets, Kanye West is the nerds. And so it became Nerd versus Jock, a tale as old as time, a battle that will never end. But what also happened was you realized that there was a subtle movement on either side because the street rap people were like, whatever, we love street rap. But the folks on Kanye's side were like, we're tired of this gangster shit. Like, we want to talk, we want to rap, we want to experience this as an art form. And I think that... One, 50 Cent was really smart for attaching himself to that because I think it benefited him to be associated with Kanye more than it benefited Kanye to be associated with 50 at that time. And I believe that if not for that little campaign and the moment they had at the VMAs or whatever show that was, and then they stood face to face and Kanye got on his tippy toes and it was a whole... I think it was 106 in Park. Yes. That moment, I believe, again, moment. And it made you anticipate because you wanted to hear what the other one was going to say. Also, the two hot artists... So it was a no-brainer. You were going to listen to them both, but now you had a reason to. And again, you were saying about Beyonce, she was there. She was doing her thing. It was out there. For all we know, they could have easily just done separate paths. But the fact that they decided and had the foresight to work together on it, because it was stage, it was pro wrestling. But I like pro wrestling. I love that rollout. I love the two of them just being like, hey, let's do it together. I forget which one of them moved the deadline up for the other one. I forget which one of them was, but one of them had the release date two weeks later and was like, no, let's make this thing together. And you're 100% right. 50 benefited from it more than Kanye did. And I think most of them saw the writing on the wall. Like if you just think about the biggest hits they had at the time, 50 had I Get Money. I Get Money was huge. It obviously had the Forbes remix with Diddy and Jay-Z on it, but it wasn't going to be bigger from a pop culture perspective than Stronger. Stronger was one of the biggest records 
records that year. So I think 50 knew what he was doing by attaching himself with that. 50 Cent crossed over officially with that feud. I think people that were pop people that were listening to Daft Punk, that were listening to Kanye, that were getting into his shows and the concert and the live experience and the spectacle, 50 Cent, they may have heard in the club, but they weren't listening to the G-Unit mixtapes. You know, they don't know who DJ, who Kid is. So those people to the point where 50 Cent, I believe without that, 50 Cent isn't on The Simpsons. You know what I mean? He isn't in that space as this pop culture guy. And I think that is the legacy because he was 1B and they both ended up going to 1A. What's your number one? I'm excited. Yeah, so number one, I know a few people reference this one in the chat. Number one is the Good Fridays releases that Kanye West had leading up to My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy. And I picked this for a few reasons. One, I'm going to explain that, but there's also a few things going on. So after the VMAs thing with Kanye and Taylor 2009, Kanye ends up going into a dark place. He ends up questioning a lot of things, and it really made him feel like he was the enemy. He was the person being exiled. And I think just what we've seen is that When people are in moments like that, for better or worse, it does lead out to them putting out some of their best works. So you have these sessions that start happening in Hawaii and Kanye starts flying people out. These sessions have become some of the most legendary ones in hip hop. Everyone talking about how many people were either flown out and just they're making good music, whether it was someone like Pharrell or someone like Rick Ross or Pusha T, Nicki Minaj, all of these people that help benefit from this album that a lot of people do considered to be one of the greatest hip-hop albums and albums, period. It was on so many top decade lists. But the thing about this rollout specifically that Kanye did, I think it was around May of 2010, he drops power. And he says that he is going to put out one song every Friday from now up until Christmas, and he's going to call it Good Fridays. So he had people ready on like an appointment schedule, like what is the next song going to be? What is the next song going to be? And there was some good music that came out of that. Some of them made the album, some of them didn't, but it just built so much anticipation because we didn't hear much from Kanye after this VMA thing and what was going to happen with this album. And it made it even better that it delivered just such a great album. And I think even small things we've seen since then, even someone like Russ, who in the mid 2010s, he was trying to put out a song every week in order to help build his fan base. So many of those things that I think are now popular in the SoundCloud era of music can link back to what Kanye did with his Good Fridays. It was really powerful and impressive. I definitely agree. I think I'm really surprised. The same thing Drake did with the care package where he took all those old Lucy's and packaged them up. I still do not understand why we don't have a packaged Good Fridays with all of those songs that didn't make the album, that didn't make any other additional projects. And actually, somebody just made a really good point in the comments, because, yes, to the point, the weekly drop, Crooked Eye did it. You know, I think Fabulous did it for a while. I think people in marketing in any cultural industry too, focus too much on tactics. Oh, we got to have this thing. We got to have this. And we got to have a rollout. And it's like, no, 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 no. Like, the stuff that you need to be focusing on is the content and the message and the music and whatever project or whatever product you're putting out. And those tactics get in the way sometimes. And I think something as simple as, hey, drop a song every week for an artist at that level seems innovative. Isn't that crazy to think about? Because you're playing like, yeah, Crooked Eye's been doing that forever. But Crooked Eye ain't Kanye West. And so for me, that's when the rollout takes that level from a marketing strategy to a, a cultural moment. And it's that intention, it's that intensity, and the fact that it's that calculated risk. And putting all that together and having a clear narrative that you're ascribing to, because we knew what that album felt like. We saw that he made the Runaway movie for it in advance, which, fun fact, so I was at the Chicago premiere for the Runaway screening, and it was pandemonium. Like, the hottest ticket in town, I got in, and I'm sitting there, and I'm in, like, the really, you know, you get up front, but it's like the bad seats, but you're just there, so you don't care. Kanye West walks in. And he stands like where you were, like, I would say, like where the computer screen is to me. And he's like stand, looking above and he goes, guys, I want to use a speech about how he wants everybody to love it and really understand the art behind it. And Chicago being Chicago is like, so don't go fast up, oh, like roasting him. So he's very upset and I'll never forget it. But he turns around and starts watching the movie like this, standing up. And he watched that whole movie. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, he's such an interesting person and really inventive. And yeah, obviously, no idea, you know, what's going on from a personal perspective right now. But 
He's really brought a lot. And I think we mentioned him at least three times on these lists. His creativity and all that stems into this. It's really brilliant. The power of a consistent narrative and the power of a successful rollout, man. It, it literally can change your career. It really can. So someone did ask a question here. Drew had asked, any love for Kendrick on these lists? Are his albums not as commercially or culturally prevalent? I'll give some quick thoughts on this that I want to hear what you think. I think his albums are definitely culturally prevalent and in many ways commercially too. I mean, when Damn came out, Damn had broken a bunch of streaming records and even the untitled unmastered album or mixtape that he put out did pretty well too. Kendrick is huge and will be huge regardless of when he puts out music, but I just don't think we've seen some of the inventive, creative rollout things that others have done necessarily. And that's not a knock. I mean, not everyone has to go outside of the box and do something crazy. Some people can just be some of the best lyricists we've ever had and just put out good music and call it what it is. So that's my thoughts on Kendrick. I think his rollouts are less is more because Kendrick Lamar is less is more. And I think having him do a spectacle like that is not him. Like you saw, I use another Kanye example, like what he did with Yeezus, you know, where they had the screens all over the country and people in the world and people could watch it. You never see anybody from TDE do that because that's not TDE. And so from that perspective, for me, it's like they're going to let the music talk because the music is flawless. And I think a lot of people can't use that as a strategy because your music is not as good as theirs. And if it is, by all means, you probably don't have to do too much. People will tell you very quickly. So I think to that point, it's not Sedan's earlier point. It's not the same kind of grandiose rollout because he doesn't really need to. Someone asked, what were some honorable mentions? I'll let you start here. Anything that you wanted to include but didn't make the list? For sure. I think the screens thing was cool. I think the calculated risk part, I keep going back to that. I think this sounds really funny. Drake Scorpion. I think that rollout. You know what they say? Controversy sells records. It's the reason that my number one pick was 50 versus Kanye. I would say Scorpion got a little bit of the Pusha boost. I think it helped Pusha go from 1B to 1A in a lot of people's eyes because I think it was his introduction to a lot of people. I think the album itself was good, but I think that the singles he dropped and the way that he dropped them with the God's plan and then that and then waiting until the beef subsided, then dropping in my feelings and like taking over the summer. I think that was a great rollout. And he's really good at them, too. But I feel like he's had more misses than hits. That's fair. One of mine was actually one that came out right at the beginning of the pandemic. It was Lil Uzi Vert's album that it came out. And he did a good job. I think he almost sold 300,000 that first week. And he didn't have barely any album bundles or anything like that. We're just talking pure streaming. And at the time, this was the fourth highest streaming debut anyone has ever had on a streaming service. And I don't think a lot of people would think about Lil Uzi Vert in that type of way, but this dude puts up numbers and it's a few things. One, he owns his demographic. He can do it without relying on interviews. Uzi does not like interviews. He thinks that they're whack. And he's just literally built this fan base. He continued to push while I think a lot of people were trying to scramble and do things not during the pandemic and push things away. And he was like, no, let me put it out. And then the week later, he ends up putting out this deluxe album and the whole no other track list because most people just do the deluxe thing and it's like a special remix about their big single no he had a whole nother thing of music that he put out there it was good you know love is rage two comes out in 2017 it's a great album i like it but i think what he also did really well was tease he's teased that album so many damn times to the point where he built this like frothy anticipation that when he dropped it it was like you know he dropped food sauce shuffle 2021 and then it was like, ah, he's back, he's back, he's back. I think, you know, we talk about owning your niche. I think I respect the artists, like your Larry Junes, like your Uzis, who are like, I don't need to talk to you. I know my people, I'm going to talk to them. This is a good question here. What about some big rollouts that missed? Because I was thinking a lot about this as I was doing mine. Any come to mind for you? I think the last couple of Nicki Minaj albums have missed because what she got wasn't what they were aiming for. And I think it sucks because I think that Queen album is really good. I really do like that album, genuinely. And I think because of how badly the rollout went for it, from the Queen radio screaming on people to that Joe Budden thing, I would say that one is a top of mind. And I would also say, okay, this is going to get me shot. But somebody actually literally just said Culture 2 by Migos. I think we have a different conversation about Migos if they follow the same strategy as Culture 1. 
I think they had to do a calculated risk and they didn't take one. They just gave us the same stuff. And I think that the market's appetite for it is not as ravenous as it was back in Versace era. So I think that was a rollout that missed. And I think that you have a couple of obvious examples across. Like anybody who drops a dud obviously counts, but like I think there's just a bunch. What about you? One of the ones for me is actually today's the fifth anniversary of Rihanna's anti-album that came out. This is my favorite Rihanna album. I think it's great. However, two days before the album was supposed to come out, this was going to be one of these title releases. Title accidentally puts it up and it's there on the platform for 20 minutes. But 20 minutes is just enough time for people to see the album, start ripping it and putting it everywhere. And it's one thing to leak an album in 2003 or four when the internet is still kind of weird. It's like Napster and LimeWire. But it's another to do it in 2016 when things are a bit more mature. She ends up just putting the album out as a free download a couple hours later. And I'm sure just considering how good that album is, that's the last thing that you want to have happen. And it's unfortunate fortunate because I do think that title at least had an opportunity to continue making moves in 2016. But yeah, there were two things between that and Kanye West's Life of Pablo album. There were just two that could have been a lot better. But yeah, Rihanna's Anti is one where I'm like, oh, such a good album, but the rollout could have been better. So I was trying to think about that specifically and not just like an album that wasn't good enough, you know? Yeah, for sure. I mean, that one for sure. I think, you know, leaks, if we're going that way, I'd say Watch the Throne. I would say watch the throne. If it doesn't get leaked, watch the throne is like, we are talking about it in a completely different context. And I think that leak and the, I remember the situation, the dude was in the listening party and streaming and got kicked out of the listening party. Ah, the blog era, how I miss it. But that to me felt like it was a big moment that could have been huge. That's it. Thanks, everybody, for attending and joining. This was fun. I mean, you can obviously tell that both of us love this topic. Literally, like we were saying at the top of the program, like we genuinely would have been doing this anyway. So thanks to everybody for joining us, man. We'll both follow up with everyone. But for everyone listening, Ernest, where can people find you? Um, you can find the newsletter Office Hours with Ernest Wilkins at officehoursnewsletter.com. Check that out. It's also on Instagram at Office Hours Newsletter, Facebook Office Hours Newsletter. I am Ernest Wilkins. Follow me everywhere. My name is E-R-N-E-S-T. Don't put an A in my name, even though I am an A student. Like I said, Dan and I, we're trying to be the Steiner Brothers out here. We're going to make this kind of stuff. Hopefully you folks keep checking us out. Subscribe to our newsletters. Engage with our communities. We're trying to build a better media. You know, we want something that represents what we're all interested in. And we hope you'll join us on the journey. Appreciate that. And you all can find me, Dan Runcy. You can go to trapital.co, T-R-A-P-I-T-A-L.co. Thanks, everyone. Appreciate y'all. If you enjoyed this podcast, go ahead and share it with a friend. Copy the link, text it to a friend, post it in your group chat, post it in your Slack groups, wherever you and your people talk, spread the word. That's how Trapalo continues to grow and continues to reach the right people. And while you're at it, if you use Apple Podcasts, go ahead, rate the podcast, give it a high rating and leave a review. Tell people why you like the podcast. That helps more people discover the show. Thank you in advance. Talk to you next week.